welcome to Inside Education, the podcast for educators who are interested in teaching. My name is Sean Delaney. I'm a primary teacher and teacher educator. You can follow me on Twitter at InsideEd or write to me by email to InsideEducationPodcast at Yahoo.com. My book about teaching become the primary teacher everyone wants to have is available in all formats from paperback to Kindle to audiobook. You can listen to hundreds of previous episodes of Inside Education by going to my website, seandelaney.com, and clicking on podcasts. This week on the podcast, I'm delighted to bring you an interview with Professor John Hattie. I first came across Professor Hattie's work on providing feedback to students. But his research interests are far wider than that, and a major contribution of his work is to help us understand how to make learning visible. The idea of visible learning is to help teachers get better at evaluating their teaching by seeing learning through their students' eyes. John Hattie's interests include performance indicators, models of measurement, and the evaluation of teaching and learning. Among his books are Visible Learning and Visible Learning for Teachers. Originally from Timaru in New Zealand, he has been director of the Melbourne Education Research Institute at the University of Melbourne in Australia since 2011. Before that, he was professor of education at the University of Auckland. When I met up with Professor Hattie recently through Zoom, I first asked him to tell me what he means by the idea of visible learning. Sean, the irony is that I get a lot of criticism for that title because some argue that learning is not visible. It's all in the head. And I actually called it that for that reason, in that one of our major tasks is to make what's happening in kids' head more visible, not only to the teacher, not only to other students, but also to the student. And like, let me ask you a question, Sean. How do you learn? Well, I suppose it depends what I'm learning. I mean, I would learn things in different ways. Um, you know, if I was learning, say, something in science, it would be quite different to how I'd learn um, how to use a new machine. I just ask you to ponder there, like you had a, a momentary pause there. And my point is that even us as adults, sometimes we struggle with the language of learning. We struggle to articulate. Now, this is what kids are asked to do every day in the school, in the, in the, in the classroom, is to think about their learning. But we don't develop that language of learning. We don't help them have what you said, those skills to know how to go about learning here compared to learning there and does it make a difference across subjects so that's where it all started and it's trying to put that focus away from the debate we love to have and that is about teaching to a debate about learning and so the whole focus of the work is moving from how you teach because I don't care less how any teacher teaches I care about the impact of that teaching on the learning of the students so it's a refocusing from looking at the teacher to looking at the student. Now, of course, they interrelate, but looking at it from that uh, learned lens of the student about looking at your effect of your teaching through the effect on the learning of the students is, is one of the major themes of visible learning. But when you're talking about teaching, you're talking about public school teaching. So you're not just talking about one learner, you're talking about 30 learners. So it's one thing to make learning visible, but it's another thing to do that 30 times for people who are possibly learning in maybe up to 30 different ways. Yeah, yes. On the other hand, students, they learn a tremendous amount from other students. And sometimes... Um, they learn the wrong stuff from other students, which is one of the reasons teachers often don't allow students to 
uh, think and work with each other as much as perhaps they should do. Uh, and understanding when is the right time for students to have those thinking alouds with other students, because many times students will actually remember more from another student than they will from the teacher. And so I think there are incredible ways in which we can look at how teachers can use class sizes that are larger than one. Um, if you look at all the research on personalized learning, on individualized instruction, they all come out incredibly low because that's not how we learn. We don't learn one-on-one. -on -one. We learn in groups. It's a collegial activity. It's a social activity. And so don't get me into the class size debate, but it's that notion of that there are um, ways in which really good teachers are able to use the power of groups to get away from doing 30 individuals. So if I'm a teacher then, and I go into my class tomorrow, what can I do to make the students' learning visible? What I'd love you to do, Sean, is, is ask two questions. I want you to ask the students, what does it mean to be a good learner in this class? And sometimes you might have to get someone else to do this because they're very compliant sometimes with teachers. But too often students say things like, a good learner in this class is someone who comes prepared, sits up straight, and watches the teacher work. Now, that's not good learning. That's compliance. And what often we do is we ask students that question. We often ask teachers that question. And then we put the two results up. And sometimes the difference is colossal that notion of compliance from the student's point of view, that excitement and joy from the teacher's point of view. If you get compatibility, excellent. The other question we often ask is to the students, what do you do when you don't know what to do? What do you do when you make a mistake? And if you like every student in the world that we ever ask, they always say the same thing. I put my hand up. I ask the teacher. Watch them. No, they don't. The kids that put their hands up are the kids who know the answer or think they know the right answer. By age eight, most kids have learned what this game is. Do well, answer questions right, get high scores. And if you're not part of that game, then that's the start of dropout for a lot of kids. School isn't. Classrooms aren't always inviting places for kids to not know. And one of the big themes of visible learning is not knowing, errors, failure is the learner's best friend, it has to be there in the essence and the nature of the classroom. So I would start there. Um, and this is the whole point of, seeing learning through the eyes of students. Talk to the students about learning. See what it looks like. Uh, now, let me get, don't get me wrong. There are a huge number of classes throughout the world where students have a very proactive sense of what learning is. They do see failure as an opportunity to learn. So we want to upscale that success. And to what extent does that differ with the age of the student? Because, you know, we could be talking about four-year-olds, we could be talking about 18-year-olds. Well, my work typically covers from age four to 20. And one of the things I find is that age on the, most of these matters does not make a difference. Now, in the case we're talking about here, about errors and about kids being their own teachers, you will see that in spades in classes of four or five-year-olds. They're brilliant at it. Unfortunately, by age eight, they learn that that's not what learning is. Learning is sitting straight, doing. It's doing, doing, doing. Getting something finished on time, long and neat. Um, so, yes, you'll see it a lot in four and five-year-olds, but it starts to decrease after that. Like the, the Jenkins curve is a curve I use quite often when you ask a student a simple question. Do you want to come to this class to learn the stuff the teacher's teaching you? Year one kids, year two kids, 95% do. By the end of elementary primary school, at best, four out of ten want to be there. 
oh my gosh, we have to be that. So yes, the, the, the joy of learning what we teach them does change over time. The ways in which we go about teaching them doesn't dramatically change over time. And to what extent do you look on learning being made visible in ways other than asking the student to articulate it? Like, would you look at, say, tasks that the student completes and how they go about it? Or what other things do you look at when you're trying to make this learning visible? Well, we're unabashed on that, sure. We have three major things. We look certainly at the the voices of the students about their learning, uh, asking students about their sense of progress. If they don't think they're progressing, they probably aren't. And if they are progressing and don't think so, we've got another problem. We look at the artifacts of kids' work, the kind of things you were talking about. Uh, we look at, for example, a piece of a ch- child's work, say, over three months, beginning and three months later. Can you see progress in that? And we're unabashed. We look at the test scores, the assignment scores, and it's the triangulation of those three. But our focus all the time is on how is the teacher interpreting that information and answering the question, where do you go next? We go a step further. We also do that from the student's point of view. We talk about assessment capable students. We want students to be taught how to interpret about their progress, about where they're at, and they should have a better understanding of where to next because that's the essence of being a teacher. That's the essence of being a learner. So, no, we look at the uh, a variety of things. It's the triangulation of that that matters. And would you look at effective matters? So, for example, things like, you know, to what extent am I learning something that I think is important? How, to what extent am I learning something that I enjoy? To what extent do I have a, 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 a sense of direction or uh, agency in my own learning? Well, it's, a lot of care in answering that question here, Sean, because uh, we take the view that the joy, the love of learning follows learning, doesn't precede it. Now, we've got to get real here. Most, A lot of the stuff that we teach in schools, kids wouldn't do if they had a choice and they didn't have to go to school. But we've decided as a society that it is worth learning certain things. And so the argument we take is it it's not about saying to the kids, this is an authentic task, this is going to help you in the future, this is a real-world task. We say, how does this attach to what the student already knows? And, like, for example, do you know how to play canasta, Sean? I do not. Good. So I'm going to be your teacher of canasta, and I could spend a whole hour telling you how it's important for the rest of your life and it's going to improve your brain power and all that, and you're probably rolling your eyes and thinking, no, I'm not going to ever play this silly game. But if I showed you... Um, if, uh, how to take two packs of cards and why it's two packs of cards, show you how to mold, and you have some small success, you're more likely to enjoy the game of canasta and want to learn it. So the argument we say is, yes, we want students to have the joy of learning. Yes, we want them to have an understanding of why it's a worthwhile activity by doing it, by having success at it and then tying it to what you already know in terms of the skills you've already built up. And so, yes, the emotions are very, very critical. But a lot of things that um, we do in school, if you start justifying them from that, then you get a very adult set of claims that students are not convinced. Why should I have to use, like, fractions? Why do I have to use fractions? Surely, all I need to do is divide one by the other. The decimals is easy. Now, in fact, that's a challenge. I ask often teachers why on earth we learn fractions because it's one of the hardest things to teach and for kids to learn. Um, when kids start getting a few skills on that, that's what keeps them going in this, this notion. And so we do talk about the, the, the thrill of learning. 
uh, and how we do want to make learning thrill. I want to beat the Jenkins curve. Four out of 10 kids wanting to enjoy the learning we do it is not good enough. So high, high on the impacts for us. Do you find that visible learning works better in some curriculum subjects than others? No, no. It's um, across all subjects, uh, from panel beating, music, chemistry, you name it, we do it. We, we can't find a subject difference. I have to say that probably most, I get lots of emails about the work on a daily basis and probably one of the most common is, but I teach maths or languages or whatever. Um, no. When you look at virtually every, almost every subject you can think of, there are three parts. There is the, the content, the skills, the knowing that part. There is the deeper relationships, the knowing how part, and then there's the transfer. And there's not a subject that we can think about that doesn't have those three parts. Now, one of the things that we say is that understanding those three parts is pretty critical because here's the problem. When you analyze what happens in classrooms in terms of teacher talk, teacher questions, uh, the nature of the artifacts of the kids doing, too often 90% of it is about the facts, the knowing that, the content. And there's a conspiracy. Kids above average want the teacher to talk more and to focus more on the facts because that's the game they are good at, that's the game they're winners at, that's the game they want to perpetuate. Really? We think it's the balance of the surface and the deep of the transfer. We argue that to get to the deep, you need certain surface ideas, knowing that ideas. And so we spend a lot of time talking about the balance and when is the right time to move from the surface to the deep. Um, one of the problems, however, is sometimes teachers rush to the deep part too quickly before the kids have the content. And that can be a problem. And so, yes, it is that balance of that surface deep and transfer. And that applies in every subject from as I said, from physics to panel meeting, from music to maths. And when you're asking teachers then to articulate about how students learn, you, you know, I'm thinking of teachers here. And I think if I ask some teachers, you know, how does X student in their class learn? They might say something like, oh, he's a visual learner or she's a kinesthetic learner. And I see you grimacing at the idea. So how do, how do you like teachers to articulate visible learning? Well, as we've known for many, many years, all that learning style stuff is the most abject criminal nonsense we've ever heard. Um, students who claim they learn kinesthetically need to be taught how to do it verbally uh, because that's what our society values and without being left out. And as Kristen Ruby Davies show, teachers who use that kind of language usually have very, very low expectations of their teachers. No, it's not that. It's When I talk about the learning focus, uh, like you said it in your own comment, there is no one right way. Um, what we say is that if a student applies a particular strategy of learning to a task and it doesn't work, do they then reapply that strategy the second time? That's not going to work. We want them to have an alternative strategy. And we looked at um, in our metasynthesis 400 different learning strategies. We're able to whittle that down to about 10 to 12 that really had high impact. But then your comment was absolutely the case. It depends. It depends on the task. It depends on where you are in the learning. And so we want students to have three or four, we want three or four notions of learning, such a like, as you're first learning something, are you able to outline and summarize what you're hearing? And it's a really good exercise for teachers. As teachers say to your students, for the next 10 or 20 minutes, I'm going to talk to you about X. 
I want you to take notes and summarize what I'm saying as I'm talking. I'm going to collect them in. And if you do that, some students will have blank pieces of paper. Worse, some students will have verbatim everything you've said, which means there's no learning going on. It's all just memories being used to translate. But some students really struggle. Now, as you listen to any class, and it's really a good exercise, particularly at a high school, to shadow a student for a day, the amount of incoming that student gets a day is ginormous. How are they supposed to understand all that incoming information if they aren't able to outline and summarize? So that's a skill. And then there's a massive skills to consolidate learning. But after you've heard something, how do you get to deliberate practice? How do you do spacing? And I could go on in the learning cycle talking about the different learning strategies. One of the things that I'm disappointed about, Sean, is if you look at what's taught in teacher education and professional learning for teachers, hardly ever do we talk about the nature of learning. It's kind of gone. Um, Piaget's historical relic, we don't look at different learning theories. And when we ask teachers, the question you asked, you know, how do your students go about learning? They do. They talk about it in terms of doing. They spend time on this. They do that. Well, no, we want to know what's going on inside, inside their head. What we've been talking about so far has been very practice oriented. I'd like to zoom out a little bit now and to talk to you as the researcher who developed this concept. What kind of research did you undertake to, to, to elicit or to bring out this idea that you're calling visible learning? Well, my career uh, in universities is um, I'm a psychometrician. I'm a statistician, a research design person. I teach those courses and statistics and research design that you loved to do. Um, and when I first started, uh, there was Gene Glass invented this method called meta-analysis. Uh, people go out and do lots of different research. A meta-analysis is taking that research and using a statistical method, making um, overall findings. I went a step further and I took the many meta-analyses out there and synthesized those. Now, the motivation for doing that is that if you are a measurement person in the Faculty of Education, you're kind of welcomed, but you're seen as not hardcore because you're not into teaching, you're not into teacher education and all that stuff. And what amused me or bemused me was that every person I met could tell me with passion why their subject, why their focus was the key to success for kids learning. And then I went into um, to schools in a teacher education role, and I was amazed that every teacher was passionate and telling me, all you need to do is watch me and you can see what successful teaching's like. And the variance is huge. Oh, my gosh. It was almost smile on your face that you saw one thing in one class. You walked to the very next class. It was almost completely the opposite. And kids had to put up with that every single day, as you did and I did as kids. So why is it we are in a business where everybody can find evidence that what they do works? That doesn't make sense. And so that's why I thought, could I change the question from what works to what works best? Could I introduce a relativity notion? And that's what got me started. And you can imagine it was a very slow start. It took many years to collect the data. It took even longer to understand what the story was. But that's where it, it, it started from, is trying to understand why everything seemed to work. Now, it turns out that if you ask the question, can you enhance kids' learning, then up to about 95% of the things we do to kids can enhance their learning. So that's why you'll never find a teacher who will say they're below average. That's why you'll find every parent, politician, every school leader 
of course they'll find evidence that what they do works. But the argument of visible learning is that's a pretty trivial question. We want to raise the bar. And I raised the bar to the average of all effects and said, and asked the question, what's common amongst those teachers where their students make more than a year's gain for a year's input compared to those teachers down the corridor where their kids don't? And that's what took me 20 years to work out and to build the story about what visible learning was. So how do you identify then a good teacher at work? I do it by changing the question from good teaching to the impact. And we use this notion that we want to see each student make at least a year's growth for a year's input, taking that obsession that we have at your society and my society about high achievement and saying sometimes high achievement's not a good thing. Kids who start with higher achievement who don't grow, that's not a healthy situation. So we say it's not about that. It's true progress to achievement. So we look at Yes, we do value high achievement, but we also value those teachers where they're having that added gain, they're making that difference to their kids. Now, take two kids, say, at the bottom of the distribution. And if one kid's making dramatic gain and one's not, then that's a dramatic difference in what's happening in that classroom. So we look at that. We use our effect sizes. We use assessments, the artifacts of kids' work. We're able to identify those teachers. And one of the things you find, Sean, is that when you look at what those teachers do, it's not that different from the teachers where they're not gaining that year because our argument is it's not what teachers do as matter as how teachers think about what they do. Um, and so, and there's massive differences there. And so we look at um, the different, and in your country in Ireland, uh, having been there, having looked at your data, I can say with a bit of confidence that probably 60% of teachers and schools uh, in Ireland are already in the status where they're making more than a year's gain for a year's input. And one of the things that frustrates me is that as educators, as politicians, as parents, we love to scratch and find failure and come up with solutions for failure. I want to do the opposite. I want to identify that success and scale it up. And when you go into a school and you say to the teachers, we're not here to change you. Change should be banned. We need to improve. We're going to identify those teachers that are having this gain. We're going to form a coalition of success around those. We're going to invite the others to join. And it works quite dramatically powerful. Teach To some teachers, uh, too often, too many teachers, are brilliant at denying their expertise. The kids did it. Parents helped. They got the right resources. And we say, no, it's you. It's how you think that matters. And we need to understand that. We need you to self-talk, to talk about consequences, to think aloud about how you make decisions. It's like I said before about data. You can imagine, as a measurement person, I love tests. But in a classroom, it's about the interpretation of those measures. And when you ask a teacher, for example, at the end of a test, what did you learn about what you taught well, what you didn't teach well? What did you learn about which students gained from that teaching and which didn't? And what did you learn about how much you taught? If they can't answer those questions, quite frankly, they've just wasted the kids' time. It's that information that good teachers that have high impact use to make decisions about where to next. And let's scale it up. And when you're measuring the gain scores of students, are you doing that solely on the basis of standardised tests? Um, no, because, um, yes, we do use standardised tests, but not solely because uh, 
teachers are not big users of standardized tests. So if you go there, you're not going to touch the uh, the nerve of what's happening in classrooms. Uh, there are some major issues with teacher-made tests to measure growth. Yes. So we don't always start there. Sometimes we start with a standardized test and then the teachers soon say, well, now that I can see how you can do that there, can you make it closer to my action? And yes, we can. And yes, we do. Um, and so, yes, we do work with schools. Um, and it does change quite often how teachers see tests, how they actually construct tests. They start to construct tests to find out about their impact, as opposed to let's come up with a test, to see whether the kids know. Like most kids, tests don't tell them much. And like, for instance, if, if you go next time you give a test in your class, Sean, before the kids do the test, sometimes even before they see it, ask them to write at the top what mark or what grade they're going to get. After age eight, they're pretty accurate. Tests don't tell them a lot. Now, turn it on its head and say tests should be there to mainly inform teachers. Then not only do they create better tests, not only do they learn from what they have taught and not taught so well, but the kids are the biggest beneficiaries. Now, we do want to go a step further, as we've done in some of our writings, and argue that teachers should teach kids how to interpret information from tests and teach kids about how then they know where to go next. And we call that the assessment capable student. For goodness sake, the tests should be owned. The data should be owned by the students. They should know how to interpret. But so many kids, after they've done a test and you say to them, where do you go next? For them, testing means that work's over. And that's pretty sad. And if you are looking at, say, something like the gain scores in, in tests or, or whatever, you, you are looking at it at a class level rather than at an individual student level. Is, is that right? No, we do both. No, no, we do both. We look at the class level first and we look at the comparability gains of the students relative to their achievement. So it's not just progress scores, it's relative achievement. And then we've got a, a method. It's um, uh, You have to be careful using it because it's got a bit of standard error in it. But we do look at the students, individual students. And we do ask the questions. Uh, you could you could have a whole class where the gain is reasonable, but hey, it's, it, you don't need to be Einstein to appreciate that within that class you've got massive variability. So yes, we do look at each individual student, and we say to the teachers, uh, yeah, "This is one way of doing it. If anything surprises you here, check it out, triangulate it, Let, look at the kids' work over time, talk with the kids about their language." Uh, the point of testing sometimes is to be surprised in a healthy way. And so, yes, we do look at um, other methods as well, but we, we absolutely do look at the test scores as well. I first came across your work, John, when I was uh, looking at the whole area of feedback to students, and I found it so helpful and, and so interesting, your, your writing in that area. What kind of feedback can teachers give students that is most helpful for the students' future progress? Well, Sean, if you, you follow my writings over the last 20 years and feedback, they've taken quite a few twists and turns in that time because, yeah, feedback's one of the more powerful influences, but it's also one of the most variable. You know, feedback to you today works, the same feedback to you tomorrow doesn't. And understanding that variability is what took us a long, long time. And it was only about last year that Shirley Clark and I finally said, well, it's time that we actually wrote this up about that variability. And one of the other things... Um, Short is the question you asked about what teachers can do. I asked that for many, many years, and I was kind of a little blinded to what I really should be asking. Um, yes, it is important to ask about the nature of teachers' feedback, 
But a much more critical question is to ask about the feedback that's received by a student. And so we take the, the, the lie that was the feedback heard, understood, and actioned, and actionable. Uh, a lot of teachers' feedback is not heard. And it's kind of like, I don't know about you, but I'm certainly brilliant at selective listening, particularly in the, in the household. Um, some, sometimes when you don't hear it and get the feedback, you just move on. and Because sometimes feedback costs, and you have to do it again or get it right. Um, the second is, is it understood? And again, uh, spend all Sunday writing comments about kids' work, give it back to them, wait a day so it's not just short-term memory, and then ask them to write some bullet points about what feedback do they understand. It's very sobering. Um, but the third part is, from a student's point of view, and we've asked thousands of students these questions, they want to know where to go next. And if there's no actionable information in there, they will argue, despite a page of your comments, they did not receive feedback. And so looking at it from that point of view is very useful for teachers to answer your question, what feedback worked? What worked is if it was actioned. If it wasn't actioned, then why did you give it? It had no impact. It had no effect. Now, there's nothing wrong with feedback about how you're going, about where you're going and all that, because that's the credibility about the where to next. And so that helps better understand this variability of feedback is that we've looked at the variability from the teacher's point of view, but we missed it from the student's point of view. And it, it, it's no different to teachers when they do performance evaluation with their school leaders. You want to ask, what was the feedback that was heard, understood, and actionable? It's the same with all of us. And so feedback, very, very powerful notion. Now, that variability is a, a real fascinating conundrum. So how do you prepare then a student teacher to give feedback to their students that is actionable? Well, yes, there's lots of good ways we can do that. Um, but part of that cycle is pausing and listening to how it was received. Like we did a study in, the, um, in, in England. In fact, it was my wife did the study a couple of years ago. And we have this, this app that she's created. and so. By turning it on, teacher teaches their class, turning it off, the teacher immediately can get a transcript of what they've taught. They can then get 16 to 20 kind of uh, performance indicators of what happened to the classroom. And one of the things that it does is ask the question, what percentage of the time in the class do you talk, Sean? Yeah, it's, it's high. I mean, I don't know, but it, 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 it's high. Across our 17,000 teachers, it was 89%. What chance of you listening? when you're talking that much. Now, let me be fair, I'm an academic, 100% talking. But how do we get that balance of monologue and dialogue? How do we get and teach students about talking aloud? Like one of the fascinations is that we spend a lot of our research time trying to understand and find ways for, teach for kids to talk about what they don't know, about their errors. And after age, up to age eight, they're quite good at it. After age eight, they learn that talking about errors is a kind of sense of failure. It's a kind of sense of what you don't know. And it's really, really tough to do. And it was, interestingly, a few years ago, almost one of those serendipity moments is we were, I was watching this teacher, uh, well, in fact, it wasn't a teacher, it was a PhD student, working with this group of students, trying to get them to talk about what they didn't know. And she was talking with this 14-year-old boy, and he was clearly struggling. 
no question. He was a quite able kid, um, socially uh, very sensible, and kids loved him, so he had none of those kind of issues. And she kept going and saying, well, tell me what you don't know. And he, he said, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I can work this out. And she looked over his shoulder, and there he was typing onto his kind of Ed Moda, it's like a Facebook kind of thing. She, he was typing the question to her that he wasn't prepared to ask her aloud. Kids are incredible users of social media, sometimes for the bad. And so that opened a whole vista of work. And I asked, for instance, um, your listeners during COVID teaching, kids are much more prepared over social media, like over Zoom. They'll type into the box to directly to the teacher or the other students about what they don't know. And so this is a really good way of getting kids to articulate. And so we want to make it normal in classrooms that when kids don't know, they say, excuse me, miss, I don't understand what's happening here. They tend not to. How do you make errors, opportunities to learn? Because that's where feedback really thrives. That's when learning happens, as long as it's safe to do that. Whereas in so many classes, from the kid's point of view, it's not safe, often not because of the teacher, but because of the pressure of other peers. We want to reverse that. And how how can we do that? Well, one wise I'm saying is, um, like, take what you did during COVID teaching. Why can't we use more of that Zoom kind of technology in the classrooms? Why do why do kids have to be in front of us all the time and us controlling everything about their learning? During Zoom teaching, a lot of kids were left on their own. Now, we learned very quickly we had to teach them skills of self-regulation. It's not just leaving them alone. Why aren't we teaching them self-regulation? We realized that we couldn't talk 90% of the time on Zoom. It just wouldn't work. We had to learn about gradual release of responsibility. Uh, we had to teach kids uh, about how to learn in groups. Like our, our latest book, in fact, I'm, I'm reading the, the proofs of the final things at the moment on collective student efficacy. How do you actually teach kids to work in groups? Like as Rob Coe showed, in your country, 90% of kids sit in groups and work alone. No, not good enough. Now, there are skills in teaching kids to work in groups, and we want to be quite specific about that. Um, there is a sense of confidence of how you can contribute to a group. But the hardest one, and the one I'm not very good at, is the confidence that the group can come up with a better answer than you. Um, and that's a really important skill. Now, let me go to the other extreme. If you ask employers now what they want from our graduates, they want people who can work in teams, who are socially sensitive to each other, collaborators, and have that language of working in teams. And so I ask you, in Ireland, do if I went into your schools, do I see kids in assessment being assessed alone? Do I see them being assessed in groups? Do I see them being assessed in terms of their contribution to their groups? Typically not, but that's what employers are asking for, that ability to work together. And we need to teach those skills. You did that during COVID teaching. And one of my big arguments is the biggest travesty of COVID teaching is not learning what was successful. There were lots of successes in COVID, not denying there were some massive problems as well. But we did it then. Let's make sure when we come back to the regular school, we learn about some of those ways of kids working through the social media with each other, with you, and not necessarily in front of you all the time. And from a learner's point of view, what is the difference between written, between receiving written feedback and receiving oral feedback? Uh, I, I don't think that distinction is a valuable distinction. If there is no feedback that is heard, understood, and actioned, it doesn't matter whether it's oral or whether it's written. Um, and uh, no, it doesn't matter at all. Um, 
Sometimes we overspend incredible amount of time writing out feedback that is not heard and understood. That's not valuable. We know that when we analyze um, what teachers give as feedback in the regular classroom, sadly, in too many classrooms, 90% of it's about the facts. Like we didn't do the study, another person did the study where they asked the question, what happens in a class when a kid puts their hand up and they make a mistake? 50% of the time, the teacher corrects that student. The other 50% of the time, that teacher asks another student to correct that student. 3% of the time, that error is seen as an opportunity to learn. Now, Sean, if you were that student, what did you learn from that experience? You're wrong. You're going to be corrected. I want that student to learn, ah, I didn't understand. Here's an opportunity to learn. That's what needs to happen a lot more. It doesn't matter whether it's oral, whether it's verbal. It matters about what that, the nature of the feedback that was received. And the actions might be how you can improve yes. your attempt, how, how you can do better next time. That's right. What you may need to do again, what, what you may need to be retaught. Like quite often the most powerful form of feedback is reteaching. Um, so it may be that. It may be we need to invest more time. But as critically, it's about understanding how you got to what you got wrong. Like here's a task I'll invite your teachers to do. Let me use maths as an example. Give the kid a problem and give them some worked out answers to that problem where the working out leads to the wrong answer. And say to the students, work out how that student got it wrong. Oh, my goodness. There is so much value in asking that because many every kid, you did it, I did it. We get things wrong. We need to pause and understand how we got those things wrong, not you got it wrong, you're a bad person. That's not the message. So there is so much to learn from that notion of getting things wrong uh, because if you're not getting things wrong, the work's too easy and you're going to get bored. And getting that Goldilocks principle of challenge, not too hard, not too easy, not too boring, is really critical. Um, Graham Nuttall, when he analysed classrooms, one of his findings is 50% of everything taught in every class the kids already know. The problem of for kids, particularly around the 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old level, is the work's too easy. There's no challenge. It's just doing, doing, doing. And in a lot of doing, there's not much challenge in learning. One of the um, features of teaching that is often lauded in this part of the world is a constructivist approach. Uh, but you're not a fan of the constructivist approach to teaching. Why is that? Well, firstly, constructivism is a theory of learning. It's not a theory of teaching. Second, sometimes the best way to get kids to construct knowledge, to discover knowledge, is to deliberately teach them how to do that. Kids, like you you and Canasta, you're not an expert. You can't think like an expert. And so you need an expert. And this is you know, Vygotsky's zone of proximal development, and we use that notion about what do you need to do next with an expert, with a teacher? And in constructing information, randomly discovering it yourself, like I give you the two packs of cards and say, go and learn Canasta. It's, it's going to take you years before you discover how to play Canasta if, if you are crazy enough to spend those years doing it by yourself, which you, I'm sure you wouldn't. And so that's the problem of a lot of that constructivist thinking. Now, here's the dilemma. Some kids under that method are successful. But you shouldn't generalize that from, to all kids. And when I look at, for instance, um, 
a lot of the methods that constructivist teaching so-called uses, like problem-based learning, discovery learning, inquiry learning, the effect size are incredibly low. And I've spent quite a bit of time in my own work trying to understand why it's low. And um, I, I think we now have a good understanding why it's so, is that too often teachers use those methods before the students have the content to then do the relationships. And like when you divide up problem-based learning into is it about the students who don't have the content, students you do, you find a massive difference of the impact. And so, so often those methods are introduced far too early. Uh, now, I want to balance. I want to balance. There is a time to direct instruction. There is a time for problem solving. And it's a matter of when you use either, not one or the other, but when you use both of them at the right time. And so some, all this constructivist notion assumes students have the knowledge to make relationships. It assumes students are good at teaching themselves, which I want them to be, but it assumes they are. And so I just want teachers to be more deliberate. Now, deliberate doesn't mean didactic. It doesn't mean they're in control. It means understanding, Sean, when it's the time for me to say to Sean, Look, you have got this, I now have the sense that you have this knowledge. Now I want you to move to using it in a relationship in a problem-based situation. That's the skill of teaching. And it's got nothing to do whether you're a constructive or if you're not. It's having that really good understanding of differentiated teaching and knowing when it's the right time to say, I'm now going to back off and let you, Sean, make discoveries and make errors. I know when to come in at the right time to help you with this. I know when to back off and say, well, Sean, you've made an error, you've made a mistake. Is it the time for me to say to you, Sean, you work out what the error is or should I still be with you? That's the skill of teaching. And that skill of teaching is very deliberate and it's not this typical constructivist stuff where you say kids are going to discover themselves. But it's very difficult to say that to a, a beginning teacher that that this is your job. You know, you have to you have to discern, you know, when you've given the student enough raw material to to then for them to to launch into developing that further themselves oh, it is incredibly difficult but sean most of those programs are three or four year programs what do they do in them what do they do when they send students out to classrooms to watch you teach um, there's a sin they shouldn't come out and watch you teach they should come out to understand the impact you're having on your students now don't get me started on teacher education. There are some excellent programs out there. And I'm privileged to have been in a university. I'm now retired from it, um, where it was a clinical program, where they did think like clinicians. Every, every assignment, every assignment was they had to come up with a problem with Sean. They had to come up with an evidence-based intervention. They had to implement it, and they had to evaluate it. Every assignment was that. Um, and... That was a really powerful way to get them to think as we're talking now to understand as, as happens in every classroom. Sometimes it didn't work. Okay, teacher, what about it didn't work? Did you diagnose the problem wrong? Did you choose the wrong implementation? The long, sorry, did you choose the wrong intervention? What was your implementation like? How did you go about evaluating? And those, those aspects, diagnose, intervention, implementation, evaluation, is what we drummed into the students every single time they went into a classroom. And you can start to help students come into the classroom thinking this way. But sadly, a lot of programs aren't like that. It's about let's watch this teacher 
teach. Let's reflect. Now, 80% of what happens in your classroom, Sean, you don't see or hear. So why would I care about you reflecting on the 20% you heard? I want you to help find ways to look at that other 80%, which is what the work we do. So yes, you're right. It's very hard. And um, in a previous university, when I stopped being the head of school and the dean there, I thought, okay, well, I've lost any power I have over teacher education. It'll go back to a cottage industry very quickly. I'm going to spend my research time looking at teachers in their first three years of teaching. Now, you've never met a more hungry group of learners. If you want to be a millionaire, Sean, it's simple. Create an organization in Ireland that you can't join unless you're in your first two years of teaching. You will find they will flock to you. There's no organization for them. There is nothing. At best, there is some induction. And so they're left alone. Uh, teachers are very generous. They say things like, if you have a problem, come and see me. And if they do, here's my resources. And that's the worst thing you could ever give a new teacher. It's about how you think about using those resources. And so one of the things we've done here in, in Australia is we've created an app that any first teacher in the first two years can get onto. They can ask a question about a kid or a problem or what they're teaching by the afternoon. 10 or 12 highly accomplished or lead teachers will respond to them. 20,000 hits a month. Um, most induction is happening in schools outside the school principals aren't even aware of. It's a really hungry area. And so I really feel for those teachers. It's a huge task. They're reinventing the wheel. They shouldn't have to. When you look at the research, teachers learn half of what they ever learned in their first year of teaching, half as much again in their second year probably almost nothing from their pre-service, and that's very sad. Um, so I think we've got a major problem there. It's it's a really tough two years. Yeah, and, and I mean, so so what like, like what did you try and do as dean? Like, was it this clinical approach that you that you promoted? Was that, was that is that the is that the way around it? And and when you say a clinical approach, what exactly did that involve in your case? Well, here in Melbourne, I wasn't the dean. It was. Uh, Phil Rickards was the dean, and we just actually published a book on, uh, including chapters on the, the teacher education side of uh, this. And the book's about evaluative thinking, about that as the essence of our profession. And it's this notion of, of evaluative thinking about you know, th those four steps um, being great at diagnosis. Now, critics don't like it, they think diagnosis assumes a, a disease or a, a negative problem. It's not, it's about what the kid doesn't know yet. Um, the notion of implementation, which is often overdone. Uh, teachers have toolkits of, implement, uh, of interventions, and we want to choose the right intervention related to the problem. It's a bit like, sure, when people say to me, I want visible learning in my school. My comment to them is, what is the issue to which visible learning is the answer? And so, too often, there isn't one, and that's a real problem. Um, so matching those up, it, it's, it's about implementation. Like when we ask school leaders, what's your model of implementation? It's sometimes a very difficult conversation. Um, sometimes the best answer is hope. Now there's lots of skills in implementing. Um, fidelity to the, um, to the intervention, the dosage, the quality. And then we ask them to evaluate, which is actually quite easy. It's just what you did at the beginning again, to understand you know, those three impact questions. What worked and what didn't? Who did it work with and who didn't it with? And how much? And that's the essence of the program. And so as you go about learning your various subjects, it's, it's, it's related to those, those four questions. And then it comes back to um, making sure that at all times, when the students are finding it's not working, 
That's the opportunity for the teacher educators to talk about other strategies, other ways of doing it. But we want that focus all the time on developing those new teachers thinking about what they're doing, not just building up a toolkit about how you get the kids to behave, how you have lesson plans. Of yes, those are important things too, but they're the consequences of thinking this way. So yeah, it, 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 um, it's quite a different way of doing it. So often teacher education institutions are full of ex-teachers who want to talk about what they did. No matter how lovely those stories are, that's not helping new teachers think. And no surprise, graduates in university, students in university, they understand what you value by what you assess, which is why, as I said before, our assessment is very much based on that different ways of thinking. We, we, as I said, everything's done through teachers, new students talking about those questions. They have 15 minutes to present and they get then a response in 15 minutes. Staff learn they love it quickly because the time for assessing is, is much reduced. Students like it because as a consequence of their assessment, they get indications of where they should go next, which is what they're looking for. Um, but there is sometimes a lot of resistance, Sean. Um, sometimes people just want to get up and talk to them about their passion of their subject. They want to talk about the pathologies of students. They want to talk about how you go about discipline and about their subject matter knowledge, but we're not serving our new teachers well by just having that focus. Another dissonant idea you have is that you dislike the metaphor of facilitator for teaching, and you prefer to talk about activator. Could you say a little bit about the distinction between those ideas and why you why you reject the idea of facilitator? Because some people say that to me as a teacher and they think it's a compliment. And I certainly don't think it is. But but they say that. And uh, uh, so I'd be interested to know what you, what, what, you know, how you see the difference between a facilitator and an activator. Yeah, there's, there's lots of interpretations of the word facilitator, and I'm sure sure when they lose it for you, they mean in a nice way that you actually can make a difference to the lives of kids. But so often facilitator, the, 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 the guide on the side, the person who wants students to have control over their learning, uh, that's what I resist. And I go back to that notion of the canasta. Nov students often are novices. They need experts. They are not sitting there on a typewriter and you just wait long enough for them to, to type out Shakespeare's sonnets. It's not going to happen. You do need to actively intervene. And the skill is knowing when to intervene, when to stand back, all these things. And so often that facilitator notion comes with that way of thinking like constructivism, that our job is to, to stand back, to let the kids do all the discovery, et cetera. And so that's why I prefer the notion of an activator. And, oh, my gosh, Sean, I've spent a long time trying to come up with the notion because so many of those words like deliberate teaching, direct instruction, are misinterpreted also and implied didactic. Teacher is in control. And that's not what we're talking by activator. So unless one of your listeners can come up with a better word, and I'm always looking for one, to get across this notion that I want teachers to be active listeners. I want them to be active in the process of understanding how students are going about their learning. I do want them to deliberately intervene at the right time. And that's this notion of activator. Whereas so often, facilitator means I teach the stuff, the kids therefore shall learn. And that's just not how it works. How important is homework for student achievement? Well, if you look at the research on homework, in primary schools, the typical effect size is around zero. In high school, it goes up a lot more. And so the question we need to ask is, why is it successful in one context and not in others? And, and 
there are kind of three answers. One is time doesn't matter, so whether it be five minutes or 50 minutes. The second is if the homework's not assessed by the teacher. And let me come back to that one. But the third and critical one is the nature of homework. If homework, which it typically is in high school, an opportunity to practice something you've already learned, then deliberate practice is a useful and, and worthwhile thing to do. But too often, if the homework is about what the kids don't know, then it's just another chance to learn at home that school's not for you. Like the worst possible homework you could ever give a kid is a project. Uh, my kids were brought up in um, North Carolina, and it's compulsory by law there that every year they have to do a science project. So every year, there's always the magic Monday where they wake up and say, Dad, the science project's due on Friday. And you think, oh, my gosh, you know, you've had six months and you do this damn thing. And so that next night when they go to bed, I rush up to the store and I buy the stuff to make the volcano. We make it. They hand it in. What did they learn? I learned that science is a horrible project subject that has got very little learning in building a, a volcano. Now, I was a, a judge on the North Carolina Science Fair for some years, and I saw some brilliant science projects that some parents had done. And the point I'm making is that there's not a lot of learning in stuff that you don't know what you're doing. And so if homework was much more deliberate practice, yes, it can have a power. And that's where the assessment becomes important because it says to the student, it's valued. It's not just something I added on at the last minute because some parents get upset because of, if I don't have homework, they think school's no good. And so think of the nature of the homework you give. Now, if I had a choice, I'd get rid of it. Like teachers have kids 200 days a year for five hours. They have them for 13 years of 15 years of their life. Can't you do it within the time? Now, the problem with abolishing homework is parents get, some parents get very angry because they judge the school by where the homework exists. So I'm not a fan of abolishing it. Zero doesn't mean you should abolish it. But you should look at it and say, is it adding value? Um, make it brief. Make it an opportunity for deliberate practice. But the other part, short is don't assume the kids know that when they go into their bedroom, close their doors, turn the TV off, that they know how to learn. Mimic that in your classroom. Teach them how to do homework in the classroom. Now, I was one of those horrible parents. I took a very strong line. If the kids didn't do their homework, homework was schoolwork done at home. So I said, go back to the teacher. And I didn't go down well with some teachers, but I was quite blunt. No, you set the homework. If it's kids can't do it, it's inappropriate homework. Now, did my kids benefit or suffer from that? They probably to this day think, I wish dad never intervened in school like those things. But no, it is a school problem. And that's why I ask teachers, you should have some understanding about if the kid's not doing the homework, you got to ask your question. Maybe they don't know how to learn. Maybe they don't know what's going on. It's no value to them. All they're learning is that schooling is not a nice thing to do at home. So homework, yes, nothing wrong with it if it's about deliberate practice. But let's make sure we, the kids know how to do deliberate practice. John, we, we, there's so much more we could talk about. We are coming near the end, so I want to ask you just some general questions about education and your, your thoughts on education more generally. And the first one is, what is school for or what are schools for? Very good question. The subject of another book Larson uh, and I wrote last year about the purposes of schooling is to, to educate students in what we value so that they can create their future. We don't create their future, they create their future. And a lot of the things that we value about self-respect, respect for others, is part of what we need to teach in the regular classroom. There are certain uh, values and content and understanding 
there's social and emotional learning. So I see it very much about how we help students create their future. Is there a teacher who had a significant impact on you? Yes, um, there is. I can think of a few of them. Mr. Tomlinson, my high school math teacher, is the one that um, I, I use all the time because what he did, not just to me, but to every student in that class, he took the view that every one of us could learn maths and he made it his mission to make sure every one of us was turned on to maths. He was quite a strict disciplinarian teacher, but he never left anyone behind. But the secret, as I look back on it, and having done the research on this question generally, he saw something in me I did not see in myself. I value him for that. He had the confidence in you. He, I then subsequently went on and did statistics in my PhD because of him. What is your vision of an educated person? A person who knows what to do when they don't know what to do. That's cryptic. No, it's not. What, if you don't know what to do, Sean, as an educated person, I want you to have the skills of knowing how to search for information, knowing how to evaluate it, knowing when to seek help from an expert, knowing when to have a go by yourself, knowing when you make an error where you go to. That's the skill. If you are an educated person is not a person who knows lots, um, that's not what it's about. It's having those skills of evaluative thinking about things you don't know. But also having a curiosity, presumably. Oh, that's absolutely the case. So that's the, when you don't know what to do, you can either turn off or you can turn on. It's the turn on and that curiosity. Yes. And like I'm at the stage now where I'm a granddad and I've got um, my eldest granddaughter, because I've only got granddaughters as a five-year-old, and it's just stunning watching her curiosity. I don't want her ever to lose that. Sadly, she may be one of those people who by age eight think her job is to go to class, sit up straight and watch the teacher work. That's not curiosity. That's compliance. Yes, I want that curiosity and joy as well. Who or what inspires you? Like I don't have a magic answer for that one because I'm a typical um, OCD kind of researcher. I get inspired by discovery. I get inspired by the joy of learning. Um, I love the aha moment. It feels very selfish, but I do love things when things come together. The reason I keep going, though, and probably the answer to your question, in the days when I was allowed to travel the world and, and have jet lag and those things, what inspired me was seeing this in action in real classes. Uh, and like, I have the privilege of going into lots of schools and lots of classes. And when you see this visible learning in action, you think, wow, how do we scale it up? This is really, really exciting. And one of the things that I really, really am passionate about is how as teachers as a profession can actually acknowledge, esteem, admire, and promote their ways of thinking about this. I want them to take the credit for the incredible success that's happening in those classrooms. That is quite awe-inspiring when that happens. Have you a favourite book, writer, or blog about education? Yeah, I have quite a few, actually. Um, one from your part of the world is a philosopher, Gerd Bester. Uh, he challenges me, probably the best challenger out there. Uh, not that he writes specifically about me, but his writings are very, very challenging. Um, my colleague in England, Shirley Clark, uh, she's probably the best at putting this into action of any academic I've ever seen. Um, Guy Claxton, another British writer, is always at me about what, the kind of thing you just said. 
Uh, talk more about the joy. Talk more about the curiosity. Uh, people look at my work and sometimes see numbers and think it's just that old stage stuff. And so I am passionate about those things. Um, I also read a, a large number of novels, and that's another source of inspiration because that's where you get into other people's heads and see how they think. So, yeah, I'm, I'm quite actually easily inspired. And finally, what from your own primary or secondary education informs your practice and education today? Well, that variance between teachers. Um, like as a kid, you, know, you, you saw that difference dramatically. And then as an academic, you never heard about it ever again. And that's kind of where there was a problem. Um, yeah, I had some teachers, as we mentioned, that did inspire me. But if I, I look back in my school years in the 1950s and 60s, and they weren't, I'm not complaining about them, not at all. But they didn't have the inspiration that I would look back and say, I wish I had more of that. I, there are many things I wish I had more of. Um, in general, I was a beneficiary of the education system, so I'm very grateful for it. But I wish there was much more debates about listening to how I was thinking and not making me become a bit of a loner in that exercise in schools. I wish school was a much more joyful place than it was. And that was the wish from his own education of Emeritus Professor John Hattie from the University of Melbourne, bringing this week's Inside Education to a close. Links to some key points of the conversation are contained in the show notes for this podcast. You can listen back to this podcast and to over 400 previous episodes by going to my website, seandelaney.com, and clicking on the Podcasts tab. You can follow me on Twitter, where I use the handle at InsideEd. I'd be delighted to receive your feedback or suggestions to insideeducationpodcast at yahoo.com. My book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, is available now in audiobook format from Audible and other audiobook platforms. Until the next time, this is Sean Delaney saying goodbye. Thank you for listening. <laughs>